You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 25th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, with Russian forces losing ground on the battlefield, we ask whether Moscow is now intent on completely crippling Ukraine's energy supply. Also ahead on today's programme... In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. He's running, but which other Republicans are likely to throw their hat into the ring for the GOP's presidential nomination? Plus, we'll explore the European Central Bank's attempts to curb inflation. And then Andrew Muller will round up the first week of the World Cup in Qatar. We mostly learned this week that a World Cup staged in a country with a dismal human rights record and almost zero footballing tradition in the middle of winter, yet nevertheless in scorching sunshine, was about as good an idea in practice as it had long seemed in theory. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. When Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, it was expected Kyiv would fall within three days. As we know, that didn't happen, and as Moscow continues to suffer defeats on the battlefield, tactics appear to have changed, and the country's infrastructure and civilians are being attacked. As President Zelensky said after missile strikes took out much of the electricity network this week, Russian troops do not know how to fight. The only thing they can still do is terrorise, either energy terror or artillery terror or missile terror. That's all that Russia has degraded to under its current leaders, he said. Well, joining me now is James Rogers. He's the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. Uh, James, many thanks for joining us. Is this a definite shift in Russian tactics and how has it changed since the 24th of February? I think it's probably an addition in a way rather than a definite shift. It is true that Russia has had to make significant concessions. We saw that very high profile retreat, for example, from Kherson, a couple of weeks ago. The timing of that, of course, particularly embarrassing because it came only uh, a short time after President Putin had declared that that and three other parts of Ukraine uh, would be Russian forever. And, of, and after that, his troops were actually leaving. I think given that um, winter is approaching in Kiev, it has already snowed and the temperatures dip below zero this week. This is an attempt um, by the Russians to seek to break the morale of the civilian population. The idea presumably being that um, if they succeed in doing that, in other words, breaking the morale morale of the civilian population, that will consequently play through um, to affecting the morale um, of the Ukrainian army. All that said, uh, there's very little evidence so far of anything like that happening. I mean, is this just sheer vindictiveness? If Russia can't win, it wants Ukrainian civilians to suffer. Well, I think we we got a clue as to what the actual thinking behind this is yesterday um, from the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, when he said that Ukraine could end the suffering of its population by meeting Russia's demands, as he put it. So presumably um, those demands would include simply ceding large amounts of territory uh, and, and, lay, and asking the Ukrainian army to lay down their arms. In other words, conditions that are completely um, impossible for, for Ukraine to agree to. Um, and so I think this is part but the, the purpose of, of Peskov saying that is to try to make people in Ukraine think, well, actually, 
you know, if we were to concede this territory, if we were to stop fighting, then maybe our day to day lives would get better. But if there's one thing that this war has done, and this is, I mean, right throughout history, there are examples of this, um, that this extreme hardship, particularly in times of conflict, uh, of war, uh, is something that really helps to forge national identity. And I think that's very much what we've seen happening uh, in Ukraine since the 24th of February. Because there's no way that Ukrainians would agree to giving up territory now, is there, having lost so many lives? I don't think so. I think it would be completely... I mean, who knows what the final uh, agreement that ends this conflict is going to look like. Uh, and, of course... Um, you know, Russia, whatever they're thinking, whatever they're saying publicly will probably presumably also be thinking privately what could be sold as a victory at home, a victory in this what began as a special military operation, you know, something that was going to be confined to the armed forces. And then we saw that mass mobilization of a few weeks ago, some 300,000 men um, called up into the army. But no, there's no way that Ukraine can accede to this, especially after the losses they've suffered. Um, it is very hard to see, um, you know, it is, well, it's inconceivable that President Zelensky would, would even uh, entertain such an idea, but it'd be very hard to see that any leader of Ukraine, um, you know, could retain large-scale public support were they to, to agree to do something like that. And what can we learn from the way that Russia's behaved in previous conflicts? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, if we look, we can certainly see parallels. Um, uh, if we look, for example, um, at the separatist conflicts in the southern Russian region of Chechnya in the mid-1990s and early 2000s, both of which I, I covered as a journalist, um, the what happened there was that resistance, armed resistance, was crushed by just flattening everything in sight, civilians, fighters, um, you know, indiscriminate bombing of the kind that we've seen in, in, in particularly in this conflict in the, in the city of Mariupol. Um, so in that sense, they're sort of not trying to break resistance by by simply flattening the the, uh, the 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 object that's being fought over is one tactic but of course if Russia does want to incorporate these regions eventually and this is where I think you know we can see without any doubt that the original invasion plan went very 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 um, significantly wrong the idea as you said in your introduction Georgina was simply for these areas to be taken over within a matter of days more or less intact um, because of course uh, whoever owns this territory after the war uh, and Ukraine as we've been saying is not minded to give it up uh, is going to have a huge um, reconstruction and reparation task lying ahead of them. Mm. Um, there's more technology available now than there was, for instance, during the Chechnyan conflict. Should we be prepared for cyber attacks, perhaps beyond Ukraine's border? Is that the way that the tactics might change again? Well, very possibly. I mean, it's interesting to see, what, you know, how many times have we heard various analysts saying in the last eight months with, with, a, with a degree of shock and sadness that they never really expected to see this kind of large-scale invasive war um, return to Europe. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that has shocked people um, beyond the uh, immediate um, zone of conflict. And I think, yes, a lot of people thought that was the way that we were going. If we look at, for example, um, some of the cyber attacks that have been blamed on Russia, uh, in the region, it, it, you know, going back as long as 15 years, it was a case of a, a war memorial being removed, a Soviet war memorial being moved uh, in Estonia, and that prompted, um, you know, denial of service attacks on on, on Estonian uh, government um, institutions. So I think we, you know, we might have expected that, you know, if you were going to try to stop somebody's electricity supply in modern conflict, you would do so by hacking the computer systems that enabled it to function. Uh, here, of course, we've seen something um, 
much more in terms of hard military power, presumably with the uh, added intention of continuing, as President Zelensky himself says, to terrorise the population. James, thank you very much indeed. That was the journalist and author James Rogers. Now, here's Monocle 24's Marcus Hippie with the day's other news headlines. Thanks very much, Georgina. China is introducing fresh measures in a bid to tackle the country's COVID-19 caseload. There has been considerable pushback from the Chinese public as authorities attempt to introduce strict curbs to tackle record high infection rates. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor is attempting to launch proceedings against the feared Ugandan rebel leader Joseph Kony. An arrest warrant was issued for Kony 17 years ago, but he has evaded capture. And Elon Musk has said Twitter will provide a general amnesty to some suspended accounts from next week. The world's richest man has already reinstated a number of accounts, including that of the former US President Donald Trump. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks very much, Marcus. Now, speaking of Donald Trump, we're going to take a closer look at the US presidential election in 2024. The former president has already said that he will stand for the Republican nomination, but is his star waning within the GOP? Well, Linda Chavez is a conservative commentator and former White House advisor to Ronald Reagan. She joins me on the line from Maryland. Uh, welcome to you, Linda. Um, when Trump entered the race on November the 15th, his speech was low energy and rambling, even as he promised to revitalise a nation in decline. Is it possible that Trump himself isn't that keen? Well, I think he he would love it if it were handed to him on a silver platter, much as um, uh, everything in his life has been handed to him on a silver platter. But he's going to have to go out there and fight for it. And I think what he's encountering is some resistance now, particularly after the results of the last election. And does he really need voters' approval? I mean, given the number of governors and secretaries of state who were election deniers and were elected in the midterms, could he swing this by electoral college votes? No, um, I don't think so. Um, You know, one of the good news stories out of the last election was that many of the most prominent election deniers were in fact defeated. And those who um, were elected, particularly those members of Congress were elected, you know, it's not clear to me that they really believe the election was stolen or whether they just mouth those words in order to appease Donald Trump. And as I said, I think what we're seeing is more and more responsible Republicans saying no. And how dangerous to him are his various court cases? Well, I think they could be very dangerous. Um, Of course, the problem with uh, the courts uh, here in the States, as I assume elsewhere as well, uh, is that they often move slowly. And there's going to be um, a change in the representation in the House of Representatives, which means that the investigations in the House, like the January 6th committee, come to an end. But the Justice Department is continuing its work. And the new special counsel uh, is being handed all of the work from the Justice Department. And I think the Mar-a-Lago case Uh, in particular at the federal level, is very dangerous. And I think the case in Georgia 
being pursued there by the um, attorney in uh, the uh, largest county in the state is also a danger to him. Well, speaking of January the 6th, I mean, is the worry that he may try and take the election in that way once again by violence or at least by lying? Well, I think, uh, look, I think many of his followers, his most ardent followers, um, are still capable of the kinds of acts we saw on January 6th. But we also see that, you know, hundreds of them have been tried and uh, dozens of them uh, already uh, are behind bars. So I think that may have some deterrent effect. Um, But it is going to take the responsible people in the party to stand up. Uh, to him in order for him to uh, go away. Uh, And I think there are a number of them who are very um, ambitious themselves. And so I think we're going to see um, other people jumping in the race. That, of course, presents the danger that if too many of them get involved, he could, in fact, win primaries with, you know, a quarter of the vote or a third of the vote. So who are his chief challengers? Well, I think he has several. I mean, everybody talks about Ron DeSantis, and I think he certainly um, is one. Uh, Larry Hogan, uh, the former governor uh, of my state, he uh, steps down. His term, two terms uh, are up, uh, has indicated uh, some interest. But I think there are others as well. Uh, The uh, former Secretary of State, Monk. Mike Pompeo has been visiting uh, the various states that have important primaries. Uh, It looks like he wants to go. Uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and also UN ambassador, um, also has been making the rounds uh, and also making uh, some noises about wanting to get into the race. So I think there um, are a number of people who would like to challenge them. As I say, the bigger problem is too many of them get involved and we'll see a repeat of 2016 when he had 15 or so competitors and was able to walk away with the nomination by garnering in the initial stages only about a third of the vote. Isn't that quite a significant U-turn for Nikki Haley? Uh, Yes, it is. And um, I think January 6th played a big part in that. I think she was, um, as most of us were, horrified by what happened. Um, But she's been sort of holding her fire and biding her time. But she was out uh, in Nevada recently speaking before the Republican Jewish Coalition um, and indicating that she really um, is sort of done with Donald Trump. Now, Trump's former staunch supporter, his daughter Ivanka, won't be taking a role in the run-up to 2024 or indeed afterwards if he wins. How significant is that? And does it point to other high-level allies dropping him? Well, I think that it indicates that um, she too, uh, was appalled by her father's behavior. And I think she realizes that it didn't necessarily help her or her brand. She is under investigation uh, in the state of New York for her role in the Trump organization. And so, you know, he has put uh, his entire family, whom he gathered around in that um, company, uh, at some jeopardy as well. Mm. Linda, thank you very much indeed. That was Linda Chavez joining us on the line from Maryland. And obviously, between now and 2024. Much more coverage of that to come. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24.
What kind of city do you want to live in? Every week on The Urbanist, we delve into the biggest questions about urban living and meet the people championing change in our cities. From star architects to designer sauruses, protected views to landfills, river walks and sidewalks, wayfinding and cycle highways, the city is alive and kicking. So how can we make them better places to live in? The other great city creation, of course, is sex. Young people go to cities to have a good time and to enjoy themselves and to meet their life partners and maybe a few other people on the way. Join me, Andrew Tuck, every Thursday at 2000 hours London time for a brand new episode. Or subscribe to the podcast and listen as you go. The Urbanist, the show that knows its good mares from its planning nightmares. The European Central Bank has warned that it will keep raising interest rates until inflation starts to fall. The ECB added that inflation will remain around 10% in the coming months and that the pressures associated with it should not be underestimated. Well, Vicky Price is an economist and a former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Uh, she's on the line now. Thanks very much for joining us, Vicky. Can you unpack the ECB's comments for us? Well, one will try and do that because, of course, inflation is still going up in um, uh, the EU and in Europe more generally. So we had the data for October where the eurozone inflation went up to 10.6%, up from 9.9%. Uh, so uh, an increase is still there, whereas what we're seeing in the US, for example, is that inflation has started coming down, although core inflation is still high. So the question is, uh, is inflation going to start coming down in the EU as well over the next come? coming months. And and I think that's what probably most people are hoping they will see. Uh, because, of course, what the uh, ECB is very aware of is that it's very, very difficult to control anything by just raising rates in, in Europe, because there are such different inflation rates across. I mean, if you just look at what's happened, just the figures in, in October, we have, uh, for example, France down at sort of just over 7%. You have uh, Germany at over 11, 11.6%. And then you've got the Baltic states all over 20%. So, you know, one increase in interest rates is hardly going to make very much difference to those countries with very high inflation. What will make a difference is if energy prices start, uh, you know, solidifying on the way down so that you don't see this upswing again. So gas prices have come down and, and oil prices as well. Food prices on a decline more generally internationally. Once you start seeing that reflected also in um, the actual prices that people are paying at the shop. So that's where I think we can start hoping that the ECB will then look again and decide that interest rates are indeed now normalised, as they say. Uh, this is the term that they used and maybe not raise them any further. So, but I mean, for, for you and I, that's more pain before the rate starts to fall. Yes, I'm afraid so. I think in the next meeting we'll see an increase. It's happening in the, in, uh, the middle of December. Um, and that is probably going to see either a 50 uh, basis points increase or we'll see 75. Uh, I think it, all, it will all depend on what sort of tone they want to use then, because uh, the interesting thing is that the European economy has done reasonably well. It rose during the third quarter by comparison to the UK, where, of course, there was a decline. And there are signs that optimism in a strange sort of way is recovering, even though the actual output data isn't particularly good for the autumn. But nevertheless, if you look at some in individual countries, including Germany, the, the IFO sentiment indicator seems to be doing okay, which uh, 
is, is good news in some ways, but of course the European Central Bank will look at that quite carefully. Mm. So, I mean, I wonder, is the plan then to avoid a recession or just make it less deep? Is a recession inevitable, particularly here in Britain? I think in Europe, first of all, there are some countries that are bound to suffer quite significantly because, of course, they're already seeing cuts in energy consumption because of the gas uh, supply issue. So the forecasts are that Germany and possibly sort of Italy and and we'll see what happens with France, might see a recession next year. Uh, the likelihood is, if we believe the OECD forecast, the latest ones that have come out, that uh, their recessions or their drops in GDP are going to be uh, less severe than the UK, which is likely to see a bigger drop, and last less long, so that they can recover more quickly from it. So the UK may well be left as the underdog in this particular uh, you know, race, if you want to call it that, um, because we've had lots of additional problems here in the UK with all the latest political issues and and uh, and other factors that have affected, I think, prospects for the UK economy, uh, which have been downgraded uh, for the next year or two. And other factors that would include Brexit. I'm afraid so. I mean, Brexit is still there; it's an issue. Uh, it means that inflation in the UK might be stronger than would otherwise be the case. It also means that some of our staff shortages will be more intense and hence we will suffer perhaps from inflation or core inflation becoming more embedded and for longer than is the case elsewhere and therefore requiring higher interest rates for a longer period. And in terms of timeline, what are we talking about? Is it months or is it years? If we're talking about how inflation may start coming down, then we're probably talking about months. Uh, of course, you just never know what may happen with the war in Ukraine, whether things which look like escalating a little bit now might cause further disruptions and further increases. But we are definitely seeing this plateauing of of inflation happening in some places already and in Europe coming a little bit later. Uh, so we're talking about months. But in terms of the economy recovering from the shocks that it has had, uh, that's going to take quite some time. So we're talking really about 2023 being pretty poor in terms of growth across Europe, although there would be some differences. I mean, we see, for example, that in 2022, at least, places like Greece have done incredibly well, and the countries that received a lot of tourism did well as well. Now, during the winter months, of course, that's going to be uh, quite different. But 23 as a whole is probably going to be a pretty bad year for advanced nations. And will the US Fed and the Bank of England be watching the ECB and possibly following suit? Well, the interesting thing about the ECB is, of course, that it's also worried about the implications on the exchange rate and will be worried about that because, yes, it is true that in terms of inflation, it's all different across, but the, the Eurozone anyway has one currency. So uh, what has been worrying, I think, for for Europe is that the weakness of the euro has meant that inflation perhaps is is slightly you know, more of a concern than would otherwise be the case. Uh, what they will be watching themselves uh, is what's happening in the US and whether you know, the, the recent feeling in the market that perhaps the US isn't going to increase rates quite so much may mean that, in fact, the weakness of the of the, of the dollar we've seen more recently uh, may persist, which would be good news for, for Europe. And that, that will also mean, therefore, that perhaps they don't have to raise rates that much and the inflation impact isn't going to be that great. Similar issues, of course, affect us here in the UK as well. Vicky, thank you very much indeed. That was Vicky Price and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally, on today's programme, here's Monocle's Andrew Muller with his take on another frantic week in newsrooms across the globe. 
We learned this week that there are those pleasures in this life which are irresistible regardless of the circumstances. And they're all at sea. Suddenly here, Argentina, and they're now behind. Alda Sururi. Japan have done it. An opening day win for the Samurai Blue. One of their most famous ever results. And to Germany, it's happened all over again as it did at the last... Apologies to our many listeners in Argentina and Germany, but we're broadcasting from London. So this sort of cheap gloating is basically the law around here. But we mostly learned this week that a World Cup staged in a country with a dismal human rights record and almost zero footballing tradition in the middle of winter, yet nevertheless in scorching sunshine, was about as good an idea in practice as it had long seemed in theory. We learned very shortly before kickoff. Reaching for the top shelves in the sound effects library this week, we learned very shortly before kickoff. All right, that the strain of keeping one shoulder to the props of this particular Potemkin edifice was beginning to tell, unless we learned that FIFA president Gianni Infantino actually had figured out where one can find a drink in Qatar. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel... Uh, Gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. We learned that Mr. Infantino had decided that this rhetorical flourish, which, if we may make so bold, might have landed better if he'd illustrated each one with a different appropriately themed hat, was the best means of addressing the criticisms much made of the 2022 World Cup host, many of which rather came to the boil as the event got underway, a motif upon which we shall presently elaborate. But returning to Mr Infantino's agonising, we also learned, for he was determined to leave us in little doubt, of the roots of his empathy. They know what it means to be discriminated, to be bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country, as a child at school. I was bullied because I had uh, red hair. And indeed, fair play, we learned when we looked it up that Qatar does not presently maintain laws against red hair on pain of imprisonment, as it does where homosexuality is concerned, and are happy therefore to concede Mr Infantino this point. Can we have some general muttered agreement? We also learned that Mr Infantino had some thoughts on parenting, though have not learned, as of this broadcast, how excited Qatar was to be cast as the half-witted infant in the ensuing analogy. When uh, your child does something uh, bad at school and you tell him you're an idiot, you're useless, and you put him in, a, in his room, what do you think his reaction would be? Hey, didn't do us any harm. Anyway. Official 2022 World Cup theme, that is, we do our research. We learned, once it was too late for anyone to turn back, that a great many of the pre-tournament reassurances and indeed blandishments turned out when push came to shove to be neither reassuring nor blandishing. 
We learnt that, after all, team captains who'd planned to do so would not be allowed to wear rainbow-patterned One Love armbands because of the well-known scientific fact that glimpsing colourful stripes turns people gay. Busy week for you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't invoice for extra, you know. We further learned that the vigilance of Qatari authorities against the subversive menace posed by rainbows extended to potentially corrupting headgear worn by fans. Former Wales women's football captain and occasional Monocle 24 guest Laura McAllister was among them, as captured in this admittedly uninteresting but nevertheless authentic audio. While we learned that most current footballers were unwilling to challenge any of these strictures once it was made clear that they might be subject to the brutal and terrifying punishment of having a small shard of yellow plastic waved at them, we learned that a few found a way around it, understanding that in some circumstances keeping your mouth shut makes a more powerful statement than opening it. Again, this presents some challenges vis-a-vis illustrating it for radio, but we weren't the only ones who saw it. Now we have the image of the tournament so far. It is of the German team in their team photo ahead of kickoff covering their mouths. We also learned that footballers tempting rather more severe retribution, specifically those representing Iran, were willing to let their silence speak volumes, declining to sing their national anthem, while their government back home continues to visit lethal violence upon women who'd maybe like to make their own decisions about whether or not they put a scarf on. We learned that a large cohort of Iran's supporters were happy to make their feelings plainer. Actually, they can play us out. It seems fitting. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time, but I'll be here over the weekend. I'll be joined in the studio tomorrow by Terry Stiastany. We'll be going through the papers and we'll also be hearing the latest from Turkey. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>